time around the Word. Of all the titles which have been chosen for the Son of God, that of shepherd is the most popular, the most beautiful, and the most ample. This is the opening sentence in Charles Jefferson's classic work on pastoral ministry, The Minister as Shepherd. Jefferson goes on to compare the title of shepherd with other titles in the Bible. He starts with the title bishop. Bishop isn't a title we use very often. It's associated with the Greek word episkopos. We read the word overseer. So when you read the word overseer in your Bible, you're reading the word episkopos, which has been translated in the Latin bishop. Although we don't, again, use this word very often, overseer is a word we do here. It's a general term like our supervisor, manager, or guardian. In Greek society, it was used to describe any official who acted as a superintendent, a manager, a guardian, a controller, an inspector, or a ruler. Presbyter is a similar word. This comes to us in the Greek as presbyteros. This is where we get our word elder from. So when you read the word elder in the New Testament, you're reading the word presbyteros. The term means traditionally old man, but its meaning in the, old, the New Testament expands to positively describe a community leader with maturity, experience, dignity, authority, and honor. There are other titles. Priest is a title we read in the Bible. This is more of an Old Testament title. Uh, it is used by the Roman Catholic Church, as you know. Jesus and the apostles avoided this title, and for good reason. The title introduces elements of mediation that are just unhelpful. Preacher is a good title. I like the title preacher. But it implies, as Jefferson says, that the head of a church, the head of the church is preeminently a speaker, and that in the act of speaking, he is performing the crowning function of his office. So that title has some limitations. Minister is an interesting title. Sometimes we hear that word. It's not a title necessarily found in the Bible, not a formal title. The state likes to use the title minister. And so before the state, I am an ordained minister. They call me a minister. The major flaw of this term is that it doesn't distinguish the leader from his followers. It's a title that really belongs to everybody. We're all ministers. We all are called to do ministry. Then, of course, you have the word shepherd. The title that Jefferson calls the most popular, the most beautiful, the most ample. The actual meaning of the word shepherd is pastor. That's what a pastor is, is a shepherd. That's what that word is, the same word. Although the church has argued about the use of all these other titles, priest, presbyter, overseer, elder, even have clergymen, rector, I'm not sure what that means, (laughs) parson, all these titles used in the church, and the church has argued about them. Some have accepted these words, these titles, and others have rejected them. The church, however, has not argued about the word pastor. It hasn't argued about the title shepherd. Like the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments, the title of pastor, the title of shepherd, is one title that the church will not let go of. And the church will not let go of that title because there is no other title that brings us closer to Christ himself. 
as far as I know, Christ never calls himself a preacher or a priest. He never calls himself an overseer, never calls himself an elder. But what does he call himself? He calls himself a shepherd. Not just any shepherd, of course. He says, I am the good shepherd. The role of a shepherd was always on his mind. Matthew 9, 36 tells us, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 15, 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In our passage this morning, we'll see that he looked out into the future and he declared, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Later, book of Revelation, he gives John a vision of the future, and Jesus sees himself as a shepherd. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the role of a shepherd colors in the person of Jesus Christ. It permeates his person. It flows within his blood. Jesus himself has, has taught us to think of him as the good shepherd. It's no wonder the church has treasured that benediction in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's that benediction, it's this blessing, this prayer that is pronounced over all Christians. Maybe the, may the great shepherd, it says, equip us to do his will. May he impart to us a shepherd's skill and enable us to be well-pleasing in his sight. And of course, it's my prayer this morning that God would do that, even this morning. That as we look at this great shepherd, the good shepherd, in John chapter 10. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read John 10 verses 11 through 21. Again, John 10, verses 11 through 21. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, 
there, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Last week, I introduced the big idea of our text, and it's that big idea that's kind of casted over basically all of John chapter 10, and it's that the story of the shepherd teaches us that Jesus is the rightful caretaker of the sheep. What we discovered last week under that thesis was that the rightful caretaker, as the rightful caretaker, the good shepherd is the pathway to God. We saw that in verses 7 through 10. He is the pathway to God. This was demonstrated through an analogy Jesus uses of himself. He says, I am the door of the sheep in verse 7. And then in verse 9, he says, I am the door. The good shepherd is the pathway to God. And what exactly is Jesus trying to teach us with such imagery? Well, I argued last week that we are to see him as the exclusive mediator of salvation. This is the meaning behind verse 9, I am the door If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And the contrast between Jesus and the thieves and the robbers is another reason why Jesus is the exclusive mediator of salvation. Recall, it was the thieves and robbers who climbed over the walls to uh, attack the sheep, to hurt the sheep, to harm the sheep. As the thieves and robbers, they're lawless rustlers who are only seeking their own purposes. Last week, we discovered that there's one shepherd, one shepherd who has rightful access to the sheepfold, only one that the the doorkeeper opens the door for. The sheep hear and obey the shepherd's voice, and the shepherd has such an intimate knowledge of them, an intimate relationship with his sheep, that he calls them by name. And they come out. He guides them into the pastures of salvation. Psalm 23 tells us, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The Good Shepherd is the pathway to God, again, verses 7 through 10. But He is more than that. And in these verses this morning, in verses 11 through 18, we'll discover that the Good Shepherd is the provider of God. He is the provider of God. And now what do I mean by that? In saying he's the provider of God, what I mean by that is that God has provided a Savior. He is God's provision for us. We see that in verse 18. Jesus talks about laying down his life. And he says, this charge I have received from my Father. All all through the Gospel of John, we've been seeing this idea that Jesus is sent from the Father. So the Father has sent the Son as his provision for us so that if we believe in him, we will have eternal life. And so he is the pathway to God, and he is the provider of God. And as the provider of God, there are things he must do. There are actions he must take. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you four actions in four words that will essentially become our outline of this morning's passage. The first word we'll look at is the word sacrifice. Sacrifice. The good shepherd must die for the sheep. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We have to admit, this is a very unexpected thing for a shepherd to say. Shepherds don't lay down their lives for the sheep. 
David told Saul that when a lion or a bear came and took one of his sheep, he went after it. He struck the predator down and he delivered the sheep. 1 Samuel chapter 17. It seems expected that a good shepherd might put his life in jeopardy for the flock. That is expected. And that even in the case that he might die in defense of the sheep, it certainly would have been an accident. He wouldn't have meant to die. The plan of every shepherd is that he might live for the sheep, not die for the sheep. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep. To the point, Jesus is not just a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He gives his life for the sheep. And while the death of any shepherd might mean disaster for the sheep, the death of the shepherd means life for the sheep. And it's this death that qualifies Jesus as, Hebrews 13, 20 says, the great shepherd of the sheep. It's very significant that Jesus says he lays down his life for the sheep. It's a very important little phrase there, for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep. You might even say, instead of the sheep. Jesus is not suggesting his death might serve as an example or an illustration. I should say merely as an example or as an illustration. Plenty of men, plenty of people have died for others. That's not merely what Jesus is saying. It's not merely what his death is. He's not hanging on a cross and saying, see how much I love you? He's actually doing something on the cross. He's redeeming a people. He's dying on behalf instead of. He's dying a substitutionary death. This is what this phrase for the sheep envisions. This is what instead of envisions. God even uses a sinful man to teach us such things, which is what we saw in communion. I mentioned Caiaphas. Look over at John 11. You have a Bible in front of you, verses 49. This little discourse here of Caiaphas is interesting. It reinforces this idea. Of course, the Jews are struggling to, with Jesus. They don't know what to do with him. So they're gathered to talk about this in John 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their nationalism was so deeply rooted that the king came, Messiah came, and they couldn't see it. The Romans are going to come here and change everything we've, we've made. What do we do with this man? Well, one of them, Caiaphas, we know this is a prophecy, right? Caiaphas, who was the high priest that you're said to them, verse 49 there, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Look over at 1814 too, if you like. It just reinforces the idea John 18, 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so Jesus does. He dies for the people on behalf of them instead of them. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He was rich. He went to the cross. He became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, through his death, might become rich. He died to purchase us, to make us rich. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. We were nothing. He became sin so that we might become everything. We might attain to the righteousness of God so that we could be accepted by God. The dividing wall between us and God has been knocked down because Jesus paid the penalty. And so his death is a substitutionary death. It's in place of us. We are not judged because he was judged. So the death of Jesus was an actual, particular atonement that provided redemption, propitiation, and forgiveness for all those, for all those who might believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, that Whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. The idea of the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep is quite interesting when you consider how atonement worked in the Old Testament. It's, it's completely backwards what Jesus does here. Instead of sheep serving as a sacrifice for the shepherd, the reverse takes place. The shepherd makes himself the sacrifice for the sheep. He lays down his life. Secondly, whereas all other deaths, all other sacrifices, excuse me, result in death, the sheep never regains his life. You ever know of any lambs being resurrected? No! But Jesus, he takes it back. He takes his life back. But verse 18 says, Third, consider that all other sacrifices die without volition of their own. Do you ever see a lamb willingly go? Of course, they don't know. Do you think it hurt when the knife went to the throat? There wasn't pain. Pulling the animal 
forcing the animal to go to slaughter? If only it knew that it was about to die. It doesn't do it out of its own volition. It doesn't want to do that. But Jesus says something amazing, doesn't he? He lays down his life for the sheep. Finally, no other sacrifice brings life upon others. Even in the Old Testament, why is that fire always burning? Why, is those, why are those sacrifices always made? There's no end to them. There's always sin. So every year the sacrifices are made over and over and over again. No life. You can't give life. There needs a final sacrifice. There needs to be one. And Jesus says, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This, this, this picture, this portrait we're given of the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep is so indicative of the Old Testament, but so different than the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of all these pictures that were given. These words, this concept of the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep is a prophecy of something so foreign, so magnificent, that no one could fully understand it. They wouldn't know he's talking about, the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. What are you talking about, Jesus? Yet, six months. The difference between John 10 and John 19 was only six months. All of it would come, become very, very clear what Jesus is talking about. And this figurative language that Jesus is using, that of a sheep and a shepherd, this would serve to, to embed the truths of such things deep into their hearts as it has ours. We'll never forget the illustration of the shepherd. It's too deeply rooted in, in who Jesus is and what he's done to forsake it. And every time we see a shepherd, every time we think about a shepherd, we'll hear these words, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so the first word is sacrifice. There's another word, the good shepherd must die for the sheep and the good shepherd must defend his sheep. And so i am captured, captured this with the word keeper. He is our keeper. Look at verses 12 and 13. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. The negative picture of the hired hand puts in full relief the positive picture of the good shepherd. Jesus is not a hired hand. You can understand what he's talking about if you think about this in terms of an employer and an employee. That's really what Jesus is using here, that kind of illustration. As an employee, when the work is neither hard, nor neither too hard or too dangerous, we're willing to work, and we're willing to receive our pay. But what happens as employees when we see the wolf coming? We're going to flee. We're going to send in our resignation. We're going to quit. On the other hand, what about the employer? Can the employer run? Can he flee? He's got skin in the game. 
He has to stay. He has to defend against the sheep. There's pride of ownership. The sheep are lost. It will cost him something. The sheep are his commodity. And if his commodity comes under threat, he must fight. He must defend. He must defend the sheep, and he must prove himself to be the sheep's keeper. Now, is there some symbolism here behind the hired hand and the wolf? As you know, I've told you this is an allegory. I told you that last week. Uh, In this way, the different elements of the story have a spiritual or a, a symbolic meaning. We saw last week that the door was a symbol of Jesus, and we're seeing this week, of course, that the shepherd is a symbol for Jesus. We saw that the thieves and robbers were symbols for, of the religious leaders of the day, and we saw that um, the sheep, of course, is a symbol for us. So are these hired hands, and is the wolf, uh, is there a symbolic meaning behind those elements? As I understand this passage, I don't take them that way. Jesus doesn't really attach any symbolic meaning to the hired hand, nor does he to the wolf. I realize, of course, there's a temptation to think that the hired hand is the Pharisees and the scribes, and, of course, the wolf would be Satan. A lot of commentators take that approach. But Jesus doesn't draw those analogies out. What I believe Jesus is doing here is simply using the hired hand, using this situation as a foil, as a contrast to emphasize what is characteristic about the good shepherd. Whereas others flee, Jesus does not flee. That's the point. He is our keeper. Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 121. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Of course, this is a psalm that they would have sung as they approached Jerusalem uh, for a feast, for a festival. They would have looked out unto the hills, and they would have sang. It's the song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is our keeper. The psalmist's faith here in this psalm is grounded in God's power, His almighty power, and His ceaseless vigilance to keep Israel. And while Jesus is the keeper of Israel for sure, that is the nation, he is the helper, the protector, the guardian, and the savior of any who call upon his name. As our keeper, he is able to keep us from stumbling, Jude 24 and 25. As our keeper, he is there to provide help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16, 1 Peter 3.12. He will deliver us from all evil by his death and resurrection on our behalf. Matthew 6:13, Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our keeper. And there's a third idea here as we continue through this. The third word is relationship. Jesus must know the sheep. 
Look at verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, Jesus says. From verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, we know there's a mutual knowledge between the sheep and the shepherd. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, he calls them by name, and they come out, they follow him. We discover in these verses, in verses 14 and 15, that the intimacy of the sheep and the shepherd relationship is mirrored by the intimacy of the Father and the Son. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as, that's a comparison, it's a comparative word, just as, he says, the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I know, thinking about God, and in particular, in particular, the way that God interacts with himself, requires some deep thinking. I, I recognize that. We know that God is a relational God, for a number of reasons. You could argue those reasons, but at the most basic level, we know that God is a relational God, well, because He is a Father. The most basic level, that's why we know God is relational. He, if He's a Father, that means He has a Son. And we know that if God is a Son, well, then He has a Father. And so God is a God of relationship. This is how He has revealed Himself to us. Of course, the Spirit is involved in that as well, but here we're just focusing on the Father and the Son. They do not operate independent of one another. They are Father and Son, Son and Father. What's the point? Well, if God is all-knowing, I assume, I'm going to assume you believe that, if He's omniscient, He's all-knowing, and He is a relational God, well, what exactly does God know about who he is in relationship with. Everything, I would assume. I would assume you would agree with that. How much knowledge does God have, how much knowledge does the Father have of the Son? There's no limit to it. How much knowledge does the Son have of the Father? Again, there's no limit to it. He knows everything. How sure can each be of the other's person? How sure can each be convinced of their character? I would think that a relational, all-knowing God would have the broadest and most comprehensive knowledge of those He was in relationship with. I don't see any other pathway, any other understanding. There would be nothing that God the Father doesn't know of the Son, and there would be nothing that God the Son wouldn't know of the Father. In this way, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a more intimate relationship in existence than that of the relationship that God has with Himself between Father and Son, and Son and Father, and of course, Spirit as well. And it's that relationship hope you're paying attention. It's that relationship that Jesus fearlessly appeals to in this passage. I know my own and my own know me just as, he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but that's way too much for me. I can't put my arms around that. 
I don't know what to do with that. That is a knowledge that is just, it's too much for my understanding. I don't know what to do with it. I thought about the illustration, pouring fluid into a vessel. When I think about all that God is, all that God has revealed himself to me, to us, I'm a vessel that just can't take it. I can't bear the weight of all that God is. It's, it just, it comes out because I, I'm, not, I'm a broken vessel. I'm a sinful vessel. I have flesh. And so where my passions, my desires, my loves should be only filled with God because He is infinitely perfect, I want other things. I desire worldly things. I spend my time doing things that are vain. But yet, I know that the day will come when I get a new vessel, when you get a new vessel. And in that vessel, God will be able to pour all of the knowledge of himself into us and we'll be able to take it. Right? We we can actually receive it. And we can know God for all that He is. We can experience Him to the fullest. Right now, when God says, as He did here, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I feel like I don't even know God. That's not me. But it is. These things are, are too deep for us to understand. I'm thankful, of course, that I don't have to understand all these things to be known by God. I can hand it off to Him and trust Him. The Good Shepherd knows me. He knows my name. He calls my name. I'm thankful for Psalm 103:14, which says, For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. He knows that I can't take it all. Speaking of Israel, Psalm 78, verses 38 and 39, he says, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. This is just describing the kind of relationship that God had with the nation of Israel. He knew, but he didn't destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the heart of our God. There's not a person in the world that doesn't want to be in a relationship. To say that you don't want to be in relationship is to break out against all sound judgment. The reason for that is because you're created by a relational God. Again, a God who is a father and a son. You're created by that God to be in a relationship. Relationship with one another. Father, son, husband, wife. All these are relationships. Relationships with one another and relationships or a relationship with our God. I know it's cliche, but Christianity isn't about religion. It's about relationship. You've heard that. For sure, it's different than any other kind of relationship. God is invisible. It's maybe the biggest difference. 
but it's a relationship nonetheless. It is still a relationship. John 15, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's a relationship word. He, he lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends, he said, if you do what I command you. Jesus says you are my friends. Jesus isn't speaking about him being our friend, but about us being his friend. He is the friend of sinners. That being said, we aren't his friends unless we do something in that passage. We obey his commands. That's what makes us his friend. It's been said that responsibility is the other side of privilege. Well, relationship requires something of us, does it not? If I call myself a husband, well, I have a responsibility to my wife. If my wife calls herself a wife, she has a responsibility to her husband. So, relationship that's one-sided is, well, it's no longer a relationship. It's, no, it's not a relationship anymore. He is the shepherd and we are his sheep. And as his sheep, we hear his voice and we respond we obey his commands. We follow him out, not to any harmful place, but into eternal life, ultimately. He calls our name. We follow him through the door and out into pasture. We do what he commands. We obey the shepherd. Now, there is something else there in verse 16. Verse 16 says, we've mentioned this already this morning, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus looks here out further than his immediate fold. He looks into the future, and he says there are other sheep. Who exactly are these other sheep that Jesus is speaking of? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly, but it's hard to not see Gentile believers in this phrase, other sheep. Recall the words of Jesus in John 4, 22, in speaking to the Samaritan woman, or the woman at the well. I know this is the Samaritan woman. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You remember that from John 4, verse 22. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We see the pattern in Jesus' ministry. Jesus goes first to Israel. He goes first to the Jews, and then he moves to the Gentiles. We see this pattern in the book of Acts. Jesus even told his disciples in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that forms a kind of outline over the book of Acts where the focus, the gospel focuses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then, of course, to the end of the earth. So Jesus goes to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so it's hard to not see these other sheep as those Gentiles. While Jesus envisions in John 10, 16, what he envisions is a flock filled with Jews and Gentiles. One flock, one shepherd. Which is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. 
I'll read you that passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews called them the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were cut off, essentially, as Gentiles. But now, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, were, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These are the other sheep that are coming into the sheepfold. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two. One sheepfold, Jews and Gentiles. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. A new relationship with one another, Jew and Gentile together in one place, one flock, one shepherd. There's four words I told you. We have sacrifice, keeper, and relationship. The last word is obedience. Obedience is the last word. This is the one last thing the good shepherd must do as the provider for God. He must be obedient. Look at verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, this is Jesus, remember, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We've already seen that there's a relationship between the Father and the Son and how that relationship is analogous to the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. In verse 17 here, we're given the reason why the Father loves the Son. And it's this. Jesus gave His life for the sheep. That's the reason. Now, I don't think Jesus means that the Father withheld His love until he agreed to give up his life. I don't think that's what Jesus means here. Rather, I think Jesus means that the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the obedience of the Son to the Father. Again, that relational element. He is forever Father. He is forever Son. And so he's forever perfectly obedient to the Father. It's like Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow my commands. Well, the Son always follows the commands of the Father, always and forever. They're inextricably linked, that is, love and obedience. It's impossible for the Son to love the Father and not obey Him, and it would be impossible for the Father to not reciprocate that love back to the Son, which is what Jesus is getting at here when He talks about the love of the Father. This is the reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, because I lay down my life, excuse me, that I may take it up again. And such love, of course, is not abstract or theoretical. This is the word agape. We know that word for love. This is a a love with complete understanding. We might say that the, the Father's whole heart goes out to the Son. It's the kind of love that He has for the Son. The Father prizes the Son's action above all action. 
The Father prizes the Son. He is His greatest treasure because He laid down His life to purchase our redemption. There'd be one flock and one shepherd. I don't know of a better place to demonstrate this than Philippians 2. You remember Jesus was in the form of God, it says. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? By becoming a man, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, it says, by becoming obedient. He obeyed the Father's command because he loved him. He had to love him because he was perfect and he was always in relationship with the Father. And so he was obedient to the point of death, it says, even death on a cross. Therefore, I talked about how God prizes the Son. He loves the Son. Therefore, because he did that, because he laid down his life for the sheep, it says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know this is a lot. I know this is heavy. Such an action should not be seen or viewed as an act of fate, as an act of some tragedy perpetrated by men. That's not what the text says. Look at verse 18 again. No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus laid down his life as an act of obedience. He was willing. He was aware. There's no part of Jesus' sacrificial death that was outside the sovereign plan of God. He was sent on a mission to accomplish something, to purchase the redemption of his people, his sheep. Here's a story of a young French soldier who was badly wounded in the First World War. Apparently the man's arm was so smashed that it had to be amputated. The surgeon was grieved that upon awaking, the man would have to tell him, the doctor would have to tell him that he had to amputate his, his arm. When the soldier awoke from surgery... He shared the bad news. His surgeon said, I'm sorry to tell you that you have lost your arm, sir, said the soldier. I did not lose it. I gave it for France. Jesus was not caught up in events he couldn't break free of. Jesus didn't lose his life. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. He was not killed He chose to die. No one took his life from him. He offered it up. He had the authority to lay it down. He had the authority to take it up. He was obedient. Four words capture the care of the good shepherd. Sacrifice. He laid down his life. He died for us. Keeper. He defends us. Relationship. He knows us. And of course, obedience. He obeyed for us. He is our obedience. But we know that four words are not enough. It's just a couple verses. There's a lot here. I had to wear a suit for it. (laughs) Spurgeon said, 
there's more in Jesus, the good shepherd, than you can pack away in a shepherd. He is the good, the great, the chief shepherd, but he is much more. Emblems to set him forth may be multiplied as the drops of the morning, but the whole multitude will fail to reflect all his brightness. Creation is too small a frame in which to hang his likeness. Human thought is too contracted, human speech too feeble to set him forth to the full. He is inconceivably above our conceptions, inutterably above our utterances. And why is this so? Because of the way he laid down his life for us, the way he keeps us, the way he knows us, the way he obeyed for us. Because he is the door. When we enter through that door, we find pasture. And because he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I'll just leave you with Hebrews 13, that benediction that we already mentioned. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.